There's an old saying about writing that claims there are only two kinds of stories. Man versus nature, and man versus self. In the latter, the stories are always about a character's inner conflicts and the interpersonal struggles they have to face to reach their intended goal. In the former, though, the struggle is less about dealing with one's own demons and more about struggling to survive against whatever it is the world throws at you. I think all of us at one time or another have played the what-if game. When we hear about someone else's struggles against adversity, we naturally attempt to put ourselves in their shoes and think about what we would have done differently. One of those what-if scenarios is getting lost in the jungle. The jungle is often thought of as a forbidding place, a place full of danger where, unless you're Indiana Jones, everything seems designed to kill you. Imagine for a minute being lost in the jungle, with no survival gear and no idea how to find your way back out. What would you do? In April 2014, a pair of Dutch tourists, 21-year-old Chris Kremers and 22-year-old Lausanne Froon, arrived in the northern Panamanian town of Boquette. The two young women were visiting Central America on a trip where they planned on learning Spanish, soaking in the regional culture, and teaching at a local school for a few months. But when they arrived in town, the school's assistant instructor told them they were there a week too early and that they weren't ready for them. On April 1st, Chris wrote in her diary that she thought they'd been treated especially rudely by the instructor. After all, this trip had been planned months in advance. It was a major disappointment that they couldn't start their trip according to plan. But, as Chris wrote, they would just have to go with the Panamanian flow. It was the last thing she ever wrote. They had originally booked a local guide for the following day to take them up the footpath known as the Pianista, or Piano Player, a three-mile-long trail so named because of the way the path continually climbs a series of ladder-like steps before leveling out at an elevation of 6,600 feet. At the top, hikers are rewarded with a stunning view of the cloud forest of the Talamanca Highlands. But for some unknown reason, on that day, the young women decided to skip the guide and set out up the trail on their own. It was a mistake that would cost them their lives. When they still hadn't reappeared by later that evening, the local family they were staying with tried reporting their absence to the authorities. But the authorities didn't actually begin searching for the girls until four days later, on April 6th. It wasn't until a few months later when a member of the indigenous Nagobe tribe showed up in Boquette with Lasanne's backpack and some of the girls' belongings that they'd found near the edge of a riverbank about eight miles away from the path. Searchers went to the area and found a few scattered human remains and items of clothing near the location. There was enough evidence for scientists to make a positive DNA match with the young women, but not enough to establish a cause of death. The cell phones and camera they recovered from Lasanne's backpack revealed some disturbing evidence of the girls' fates. During the many days they were lost in the jungle, records show the girls tried turning their phones on and calling 911. But there was no cell phone reception, and the calls almost never went through. There was one day when a call to emergency services briefly connected, but then the signal dropped immediately. Investigators recovered the digital photos on their phones and digital camera, and they offer some clues as to what happened, but still leave many questions unanswered. For a while, everything seems fine, and the girls seem happy. But at some point, something must have gone wrong because the scenery in many of the images that follows becomes increasingly unfamiliar, 
and the girls begin to appear more and more distressed. There's a series of more than 90 photos that were taken in rapid succession one night in total blackness. Some people speculate the girls might have seen a signal flare shot overhead by searchers and were hoping to signal back using the camera's flash. Chris and Lisanne appear to have done their best to conserve the battery power in their phones, but both of the phones eventually died. And after a certain point, no one knows what happened to them. Of course, there are plenty of theories. Everything from abduction by some crazed serial killer to death by pygmy cannibals or cartel drug gangs. What's most likely, and the theory I tend to believe, is that one of the girls suffered from some sort of accident causing the two of them to get separated from the trail. And from there, one calamity led to another, and ultimately, to their tragic end. The story of the lost Dutch girls can be seen as a cautionary tale, one that points to the utter hopelessness of trying to survive in the jungle. But there are other similar stories from history where the outcome isn't quite so certain. Sometimes, as it turns out, people have a way of surprising you. I'm Nate Hale, and I always leave a trail of breadcrumbs wherever I go. And this is The Conspirators. Julianne Kepke was born a German national in Lima, Peru in 1954. She was the daughter of a pair of renowned scientists. Her father, Hans Wilhelm, was a highly regarded zoologist, and her mother, Maria, was an equally revered ornithologist. As a teenager, Julianne was enrolled in a Peruvian high school, while her parents manned a remote research station hundreds of miles away deep in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. Julianne, age 17, had just celebrated her high school graduation on December 23rd. The following day, Christmas Eve, she was scheduled to board a plane with her mother to take the 90-minute flight over the jungle to celebrate Christmas with her father. Julianne's mother had wanted to leave two days earlier, but Julianne begged her to wait so that she could attend her school dance and graduation ceremony. So instead, Maria booked seats for the two of them on Lanza Flight 508 out of Peru on Christmas Eve. The early part of the day was full of frustration. The plane was delayed for seven hours, none of which sat well with either woman. Julianne's mother didn't like flying to begin with. As an ornithologist, she always thought it was unnatural for humans to fly in a large metal bird. On top of that, Lanza had a lousy reputation for safety. Two other Lanza planes had crashed recently, something that Julianne's mother couldn't help but pointing out repeatedly throughout the day. But Julianne tried her best to put her mother's worries out of her mind. She enjoyed flying, and after all, how often could disaster strike? Julianne and her mother sat together in the second-to-last row on the plane. Julianne had the window seat so that she could look out in the canopy of green jungle below. Her mother sat in the middle seat next to her, and another man had the aisle. The first half hour of the flight was uneventful. A server came along and handed out sandwiches and cold drinks to passengers. A short while later, Julianne looked out the window and could see they were headed toward rough weather. A heavy black thundercloud was rolling through the sky toward them. Moments later, the plane was engulfed by blackness. Day turned to night in an instant all around them, shattered by bright flashes of lightning coming from all directions. Passengers gasped and nervously buckled their seatbelts as the plane began to jerk and shudder in the air. Luggage, wrapped gifts, and clothing fell from the overhead bins. Sandwich trays heaved up into the air and half-finished drinks splashed onto passengers' laps. 
By now, people were openly saying prayers and crying. Hopefully this goes all right, Julianne's mother said to her, just before a blinding flash of light burst over the plane's right wing. A bolt of lightning had struck the plane and sheared the wing clean off. Almost immediately, the left wing tore loose from the plane as well. The plane tilted into an abrupt nosedive. As her center of gravity lurched forward, Julianne could see straight down the aisle into the plane's cockpit. All around her was the thunderous roar of the plane going down. Through the din, Julianne swore she could hear her mother say calmly, Now it's all over. Those would be the last words her mother ever spoke to her. Seconds later, the plane disintegrated around Julianne, and suddenly she found herself outside the aircraft, still belted into her seat and free-falling in mid-air more than 10,000 feet above the Peruvian jungle. Her seat spun like a top in the blackness. Her belt strap cut deeply into her belly and drove all the air out of her lungs. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't see. Soon the darkness overtook her, and for a time, Julianne knew nothing at all. Her eyes fluttered open some unknown time later. Julianne had a difficult time processing what had just happened. She looked around her and realized that she was on the ground. Her seatbelt was off. She could see the triple row of seats where she, her mother, and the other passenger had been sitting, lying in the mud a few feet away. Neither her mother nor the other man were anywhere to be seen. Julianne looked up and stared through the break in the canopy of trees high overhead and realized that she had come crashing to the earth through them and somehow, miraculously, survived. Turning her neck caused a jolt of pain. She didn't know it at the time, but her collarbone was broken. Later on, she would realize it was broken when she felt the shattered halves of the bones scraping against one another. One of her eyes was swollen nearly shut as well, and was difficult to see out of. All the capillaries in both eyes had ruptured with the rapid change of air pressure, and the whites in her eyes were completely red with blood. She had a deep gash on her calf, and she'd ruptured the ligaments in one of her knees. But her legs still seemed to move. For now, Julianne was tired, and all she wanted to do was sleep. She managed to crawl over to the meager shelter provided by the row of seats, and once again, she passed out. Julianne slept for the rest of that day and night. She woke again the following morning. Part of her still wanted to just lie there and not move but she knew she had to get up if she wanted to survive. She tried to focus on her watch with her one good eye. She was missing her glasses, and it made it even more difficult to see without them. She was eventually able to see that it was 9 o'clock on Christmas morning. She tried getting up on her knees, but then had to lie back down. Her head was throbbing, as was her broken collarbone. She gingerly touched the gash in her leg, but it wasn't bleeding. She crawled around on all fours, shouting for her mother, but no one answered. The only sounds she heard were the typical sounds of the rainforest. Julianne was completely alone. Now, I'm sure a lot of us would panic in moments like this, but panic is what often leads to death in survival situations. And in this instance, Julianne had an advantage. You see, unlike the two Dutch girls in Panama, Julianne had spent quite a bit of time living in the rainforest with her parents and she picked up enough survival knowledge to know that the forest wasn't necessarily the green hell a lot of people made it out to be. It was scary, that was for sure. The trees are huge and cast enormous shadows, and it can be difficult to get your bearings without a compass or GPS. Not to mention the many potential predators that made their home in the rainforest. But despite all that, 
Julianne knew it was survivable, just as long as she kept her wits about her and remembered what she'd been taught. She eventually managed to clamber to her feet. She was unsteady, but she found that she was still able to walk with a little effort. With each step, the blown ligaments in her knee brought a new jolt of pain. As she stumbled around, Julianne began to hear the hum of search planes overhead. The crowns of the trees high above were bathed in golden light. Although she could hear the planes overhead, she couldn't see them. And if she couldn't see them, they certainly couldn't see her either. She knew she'd have to move if she had any hope of finding help. At the time, Julianne was only wearing a short sleeveless dress. She was also missing one of her sandals. She kept the remaining one on though. She favored that foot as she carefully stepped through the jungle, testing the ground for hidden snakes. She either never encountered any or she just didn't see them. She found a bag of candy near the crash site and that was her only food source. She tried to dole it out piece by piece but she knew it wouldn't last long. As she trudged along, she eventually began to hear the sound of running water. This was a good sign. Her father had taught her that if she was ever lost in the jungle, one thing you should do was find a running stream or a creek, because that would eventually lead to a river, and a river is where you would find help. The source of the noise was, in fact, a tiny rivulet. Not only would this provide a water source for her, but it would also hopefully lead to a larger body of water. She followed the rivulet to a stream that eventually opened up into a wider creek. Julianne decided it would be safer to wade in the creek itself rather than risk stepping on a poisonous snake. That day the jungle was punishingly hot. The air was thick and steamy, like marching through a sauna, and the cool stream was Julianne's only comfort. It would be worse at night, she knew. She had already encountered one shivering cold night in the jungle, and she knew she had more of that to look forward to. The bugs were the worst, though. Insects ruled the jungle. Mosquitoes and black flies swarmed maddeningly around her every minute of the day. And there was a variety of stingless wild bee that loved to cling to her hair. Not only did the insects make her skin itch furiously, she realized, after a few days, the flies had begun to lay eggs in the cut in her arm. Within days, those eggs would hatch, and maggots would begin to burrow underneath her skin. By December 28th, Julianne's watch stopped for good, so from then on she could only chart the days by the setting sun. Her bag of candy had long since run out, and since it was the rainy season there was barely any fruit to pick anywhere. If she had a knife she could hack out the palm hearts from the stems of palm trees, but she didn't and she couldn't. Nor was she able to catch fish, and she didn't dare eat any of the vegetation she was unable to recognize. As Julianne traveled downstream, she began to find more wreckage from the plane, as well as more of the crash victims. She heard the carrion birds squawking overhead, even before she encountered her first dead bodies. She came across a row of seats that still contained three dead women strapped to them. They had landed headfirst with enough impact to bury them in the ground up to their shoulders. Julianne was horrified. She didn't want to go anywhere near the bodies, but at the same time, she needed to be sure that none of them were her mother. She found a stick and knocked the shoes off the corpses. They each had painted toenails, and she knew that none of them were her mother, because her mother never wore nail polish. Although the stream provided relative safety from poisonous snakes on the land, the water was still hazardous. Piranhas and devil rays made their home in these waters. But if she kept moving and kept away from the riverbanks, she thought she'd be relatively safe from them. The worst potential dangers were the crocodiles 
Occasionally, she would see them sunning themselves along the banks, and sometimes they would even move threateningly toward her, but none attacked. As much as possible, Julianne tried to stay in the shallows, never allowing herself to go in any deeper than her waist. Any deeper than that, and she'd have to worry about getting carried off with the current. When night fell, she'd venture onto shore and hide shivering beneath a tree or in a bush. During all the time Julianne spent in the jungle, she would occasionally hear the sound of search planes flying overhead. But none ever came low enough to spot her. She felt hopeless, abandoned, and alone. Without food, all she had to fill her belly was river water. She fantasized about food all the time now. At night, she dreamed about gorging herself at enormous, elegant feasts. During the day, she began hallucinating and imagining she was seeing houses along the riverbank, although there weren't any. One morning, Julianne began to feel a sharp pain in her back. When she reached to touch the spot, her hand came away bloody. All that time under the searing sun had given her second-degree burns. On her tenth day drifting in the water, she found she was having more and more trouble getting around. Many logs cluttered the water in this part of the river, and she'd often have to muster all the strength she had in order to climb over them and not break any bones as they came loose and smashed against one another. That evening, she found a gravel bank that looked like a good place to sleep. She began to doze for a few minutes when something caught her eye and made them open wide. She was staring at a boat. She had to rub her eyes to make sure it wasn't another illusion, but it was still there. She swam over to touch it, and she was stunned that it was real. Then she saw a ragged trail leading up the bank from the river, a man-made trail. She got out of the water and followed the trail uphill, praying she'd find people at the end of it. In her weakened condition, it took her hours to make the trek through the jungle. At the top of the hill, Julianne found a small shack, but no people. Shack was a bit of an exaggeration. It was just a little hut without walls, with a palm bark floor and a roof mounted on four posts. Still, it was the first sign of civilization that she'd seen in days. She crawled inside and found an old tarp that she wrapped around her. By now, the maggots had hatched underneath her skin and were eating a fresh hole in her arm. She found a can of gasoline and a rubber tube. She put the tube in the gas can and sucked on the other end to form a siphon, then pumped the diesel fuel directly into the wound. The pain was excruciating, but it managed to drive most of the maggots out. There were frogs all around her, and for a little while she thought she'd try to catch one and eat it, but she was too weak and too slow at that point, and it was probably a good thing anyway. They were poisoned tree frogs, and they likely would have killed her had she caught one. By the next morning, still no one had shown up, but she didn't want to leave, and she probably couldn't have left even if she tried. Her strength was almost gone. She spent the rest of the day shivering inside the tarp as the rain finally sputtered out late in the afternoon. As twilight began to set in, Julianne heard voices coming out of the forest. A group of three men stepped out of the trees, then stopped when they saw her. I'm a girl who was in the Lancer crash, she told them in Spanish. My name is Julianne. The men would later tell Julianne that they thought she was a ghost at first, a kind of golden-haired water spirit known as a Yamanja. But when she spoke to them in Spanish, they knew she was no ghost. They had heard about the plane crash on the radio days earlier. They gave Julianne food, and they stayed with her that night in the hut. In the morning, they helped her back to the boat and took her down to the river to a small town where she was treated at a local hospital. 
At the hospital, Julianne met a local pilot who flew her to a village near Pucalpa, where some local missionaries helped nurse her back to health. She was soon reunited with her father. When she was well enough again, she would go with the search party back into the jungle and show them where she discovered the plane's wreckage. Eventually, they would find her mother's body along with the bodies of the rest of the crew and passengers. She was the only survivor. Julianne's story made the news, and for a time, she became a minor celebrity. In 1974, an Italian filmmaker made a highly fictionalized version of her story that was released in English as Miracles Still Happen. 25 years later, director Werner Herzog made a documentary about Julianne's story, in which he brought her back to the jungle to retrace her steps. Julianne moved to Germany, where she fully recovered from her injuries. For years, she had nightmares about her ordeal, and about her mother's death. Even today, she talks about being haunted by knowing she was the only survivor. She studied biology at the University of Kiel, and later went on to receive her doctorate. For a time, she returned to Peru to conduct research in mammalogy. She currently serves as the librarian at the Bavarian State Zoological Collection in Munich. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Every week I see the listeners for my show grow and grow, and it's all thanks to people like you. If you want to help us continue to grow, spread the word and subscribe to us on iTunes, and leave us a review if you have a chance. We're also always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again.